0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, Lovely to see you, and especially if you're with us for the first time, it really is great to have you with us. Uh, You would like to, I think you'll need to keep your Bible open at the passage that uh, Jackie read so beautifully for us, and you'll also find an outline in the white bulletin, uh, on the inside of the white bulletin, which tells you where we're going in the next few moments. And uh, for the benefit of the newcomers, uh, let me also say that the green question sheet is the sheet that we use in our weekly Bible studies on a Wednesday evening and uh, we meet in our home at Tekai and you're warmly welcome to join us for that. Uh, So that's something that we we like to do here at St. Barnabas. Before I pray, can I just say that um, Alice did a marvellous job with the flyers for Easter week. Uh, These are not decoration. Uh, Will you please take them away with you and give them to your friends and make sure they're with us starting next Sunday. It is going to be the most marvellous week together. So, if you want more, there are some lying around. Don't let's leave any of them in the hall. Take them with you and give them to your friends and neighbours. They need to be here. Okay, well, will you bow with me and uh, let's ask for God's help to understand his word. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through the words of scripture. Thank you for the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the way that he reveals to us your mind and your heart. And we pray now for minds that are active to receive that truth, for hearts that are open to understand it and for wills to put it into practice. And we ask for the glory of your holy name. Amen. Well, this morning is actually the last in our present series in the Gospel of John. Uh, As White said, next Sunday, God willing, we begin our Easter series. We will be continuing in John's Gospel in the first term of next year. If you're a regular, then I hope by now you know that John has been teaching us in these early chapters of his Gospel what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. And uh, our passage this morning shows us why that is not just an abstract idea for super keen Christians to discuss together on Sunday mornings. It is absolutely fundamental and practical for your life and for mine. So let me start this morning with a question. If someone were to ask you, how does a person become a Christian and remain a Christian, I wonder what you'd say. One survey that I read says that 66% of professing believers would describe themselves only as casual Christians. Uh, As the survey defines it, uh, casual Christianity is faith in moderation. Uh, In other words, it allows people to feel religious without having to invest too much of themselves in their faith. And I guess from from a social point of view, that's a pretty safe uh low risk position to take because it doesn't really demand a public coming out. Uh, it doesn't require too many inconvenient changes to a lifestyle. Now there are lots and lots of problems with that. But the main one is that it suggests that people think that they are in the driving seat. That when it it comes to becoming a Christian or remaining a Christian, that they can call the shots. My friends, that is not right. That is not the message of the New Testament. So, how does a person become a Christian and remain a Christian? Well, the answer that our passage gives is that a Christian is somebody who has had at least three experiences of God. Three experiences of God dealing with them... Individually and personally. These experiences are utterly life-changing, but they're also incredibly gentle. Indeed, you might not even notice them happening. But when you look back, you are in absolutely no doubt that God has definitely been doing business with you. So, what are these three experiences? The three experiences that are common to every Christian without exception. Well, the first is an experience of God's irresistible love. Now, at the beginning of our passage, uh, John says something that should grab the attention of every careful Bible reader. Have a look at verse 41. John says, at this the Jews began to grumble about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, I'm sure you know that the context of this grumbling is the feeding of the 5,000 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago and the claims that Jesus has been making about himself. And it is surely no accident that John is using precisely the same language here that we find in various places of the Old Testament to describe the way that Israel in the desert grumbled against God in spite of the miraculous provision of manna and quail. And uh, what John wants his readers to notice uh, is that this unbelieving spirit hasn't changed. In spite of the fact that Jesus provided this miraculous bread, just like God did in the wilderness all those years before, they're still grumbling. In spite of the miracle, they still can't believe. Now, my friends, that is the context for understanding what Jesus is teaching here. We touched on it last week, but it's even clearer in our passage this morning. What is it? What's the message? It is this, that no one can make themselves a Christian. That is actually one of the distinguishing marks of the Christian faith. Uh, And in that sense, it's completely different from uh, Buddhism, or Islam, uh, or Hinduism. Because in each of those religions, I can decide tomorrow morning to become a disciple by my own free choice. That is not the case with Christianity. Why not? Well, the New Testament says that on my own, I cannot (coughs) want to become a Christian. That is the consistent message of the New Testament. So, for example, in uh, Romans chapter 8, which we looked at together last year, Paul puts it like this. He says this quote, The natural mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, and then these marvellous words Nor can it do so. In other words, by nature, the human will is fatally defective and it cannot make a positive response to the gospel. So, what Jesus says here in verse 44 is, in my mind, one of the most encouraging statements in the entire Bible, because in verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, the word translated draws in verse 44 has a very particular meaning, In every instance where that word is used in the New Testament, it is drawing something or someone that is resisting. It's always talking about a person being drawn in a direction they don't want to go. So, keep one finger please in John and turn with me to Acts chapter 16 on page 782. Acts, chapter 16, page 782, and it's in the left-hand column at the bottom of the page if you're using a church Bible. Page 782, bottom left-hand column. Uh, We're going to pick it up from verse 19. Now, Paul and Silas are in Philippi, Uh, Paul has just uh, done a deliverance ministry on a little slave girl, and in verse 19 we read this. When the owners of the slave girl realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Now think about it. Quite clearly, Paul and Silas weren't going to face the authorities voluntarily. They didn't want to go. They had to be dragged there against their will. That's the word we've got in John six forty four. But don't go back there yet. Turn on to chapter 21, verse 30, in the book of Acts. Page 786, bottom of the right-hand column. Acts 21, verse 30. Now again, uh, this is about the apostle Paul, and he's in the temple at Jerusalem, and his Jewish enemies are looking for a way to kill him. And uh, when they discover where he is, look at verse 30. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. That's perfectly obvious, isn't it? Paul didn't want to leave the temple. He was perfectly safe there. So the Jews had to drag him from the temple against his will. And again, that is the same word we have in John 6, verse 44. So come back there now, and I want to show you how wonderfully positive this is. You see, when Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him, what he's actually saying is that there is not a single Christian alive in the world today or at any time in history who was not drawn by the Father. They were all resisting, every single one. But God used his irresistible love to draw them to Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis was one of the most effective Christian witnesses in the 20th century. And I think it is tempting, isn't it, to look at someone like that and imagine that it was somehow much easier for him to become a Christian than for the rest of us. But if you look at the reverse of the green question sheet, I'd like you to see how C.S. Lewis described his own conversion experience. This is what he says. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalen, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. In other words, God drew C.S. Lewis to Jesus. Now friends, this has got two vital implications for us if you think about it. Firstly, it means that our prayers for our friends and family Really do matter. You see, you and I can't nag anybody into becoming a Christian. What we've got to do is we've got to go to God on our knees and say, Lord, you know, my friends and family, they're marvelous people. But you know what? They are so stubborn. They are so resistant. They are so hardened to the gospel. Please, will you draw them to Christ? And of course, with Easter just around the corner, Wouldn't that be a marvellous thing for all of us to be praying this morning? Secondly, it means that we can afford to be far more bold than we are in reaching out to the really tough cases. You see, I think we tend to be far too easily put off by hostility. But you see, if God has determined to draw a person to Christ... Well, that's what's going to happen, isn't it? His drawing love is actually irresistible. It's rather interesting, you know, so many times in history, uh, it's the people who are the most hostile at first who actually end up being the most effective servants of Christ in the end. Perhaps the obvious example is the Apostle Paul. Uh, you know, to begin with, uh, the murderous persecutor of the early church. But after God drew him to Christ, he took the gospel right across the known world, didn't he? Or what about John Newton? Uh, to begin with, uh, a slave trader, carrying thousands of human beings across the Atlantic, killing many of them in the process. But he was drawn to Christ and he ended up becoming a wonderfully effective preacher and the writer of some of the most beautiful hymns in the English language or perhaps in our own day um, some of you know of a lady called Rosaria Butterfield for years she was a practicing lesbian an angry atheist by her own admission uh, the name of Jesus stuck in her throat like the tusk of an elephant that's how she puts it In her own testimony. But in 1999, she was drawn to Christ, and today she's a highly respected Christian author and very effective conference speaker. So, can I challenge you this morning, please, to look around you? Who are the people in your life who are the most resistant to the gospel? In your family? In your circle of friends? Start praying for them. Ask God, even this Easter, to draw them to Christ and see what happens. So, the Christian's first experience of God is an experience of the Father's irresistible love as he draws men and women to Christ. But that raises, I think, an important question, which is how does the Father do this important drawing work. Well, the the Christian's second experience of God is an experience of his supernatural instruction. Now, in verse 45, Jesus says something very striking. He says, it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him Comes to me. Now we need to think about this. Right at the end of the passage we're told that at this point Jesus is talking to Jews in the synagogue at Capernaum. So these are religious people, uh, they have full access to an Old Testament Bible and they know it backwards. And yet it is painfully obvious, isn't it, that they are showing no sign whatsoever of Of coming to Jesus. So it would seem, wouldn't it, that simply having access to a Bible and reading it isn't enough. Because if it were, when Jesus came, the Jews would have recognized him and they would have come to him. But as it is, they can't get him out of the way quick enough. So, what's the problem? Well, in the Old Testament, um, if you wanted to hear the word of God, what you had to do was go and listen to one of God's prophets. Only the prophets could bring the word of God to Israel. But uh, the prophets all spoke about a time when God's people would have the inward illumination of the Spirit. And when the Spirit came, they would quite literally be taught by God and not by a priest not by a prophet so to give you perhaps one of the most famous examples Ezekiel 36 uh, in that chapter we find God saying to his people I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now you see, the point is that the word on its own is not enough to draw me into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't mishear that. The word is absolutely essential. Uh, The person who never reads his Bible, who never sits under the preaching of the word has absolutely no right to expect that God will draw them to Jesus. But what Jesus is saying in John chapter 6 is that like the manna in the desert, the word on its own is only going to get me so far. If my eyes are going to be opened so that as I read the word, instead of grumbling, I begin to see that without Jesus I'm a sinner, deserving only wrath and judgment. If that's going to happen, the Holy Spirit must open my eyes. In other words, the the external teaching must be accompanied by the internal witness. I've got to have the Word and the Spirit together. And that's the idea that uh, Jesus is picking up on in our passage i think one cross reference will help us uh, flick ahead quickly to 1 corinthians chapter 12 on page 811 1 corinthians 12 page 811 now in this uh, letter paul is talking to a very gifted church they were a very troubled church i'm very glad i wasn't asked to pastor the church at corinth um They were a very knowledgeable church. They did know their Bibles extremely well. Come with me, please, to chapter 12 and verse 3, which is at the top of the right-hand column in the church Bible. Paul says this, Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed. Now pay attention. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Couldn't be clearer, could it? Couldn't be clearer. So, the Father draws us to Christ as we read the Word, and at the same time, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes so that we see Jesus for who he really is. We'll come back to John. Because it's rather interesting to reflect on this. This supernatural instruction doesn't stop the day we get converted. When Jesus says in verse 45, they will all be taught by God, you'll notice there's a footnote in the NIV. And the footnote tells us that Jesus is quoting a passage from Isaiah. You don't need to look it up, but it's part of a passage which talks about the, the true people of God, that the people who've been redeemed by the suffering servant. What are they doing? Well, in that passage, they are standing in heaven and they're being instructed by God himself. So you see, God's plan for the people who really do belong to him is to teach them. I wonder if you knew that. In fact, God has got so many wonderful things to say to us that it's going to take him all eternity to do it. It's one of the things we're going to be doing in heaven. I wonder if you did know that before you came here this morning. But what Jesus, you see, is saying in verse 45 is that the people who will be standing before the Lord then are the people who are keen to listen and learn from him now. And that is one of the signs that Jesus has already given them eternal life and will raise them up at the last day. Now that may be a surprise to you, but can I say it's what Sunday mornings are all about. We want God to teach us. So can I ask you, is God revealing new truths to you? About him? About yourself? Do you understand the Gospel in a deeper way this morning than you did a year ago? Are you making adjustments in your life that show Jesus is actually your top priority? Because, you see, it's positive answers to those questions that will confirm to you whether or not the Father really has drawn you to Christ. Well, before moving on, I want to say that If we are going to listen to God and learn from him, well, you and I need to sharpen our listening skills. And it's, of course, an area where all of us struggle. Can I say this? Particularly the men. Uh, But think for a moment of your cell phone. Uh, If I want to have an important conversation with my brother White, what I've got to do is make sure that my cell phone battery is fully charged up and that I'm standing in a place where there's a really good signal strength. And you see, it's rather like that with God. If I really want to listen to God, if I really want to learn from him, it's absolutely no good trying to do it when my batteries are about to run out, and I'm certain to be interrupted every five minutes. I mean, that's hopeless, isn't it? If I want God to teach me, I've got to make sure that I'm listening when my mind is fresh and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be interrupted. Now that means one or two diary adjustments, doesn't it? Well, so far we've discovered that a Christian is somebody that the father has drawn to the son and this person has been enrolled in a lifelong programme of supernatural instruction in which God himself is the teacher. But I want to end on this. How do I know that I'm going to finish the course? What happens in those many times when I'm so overwhelmed by some sadness or great disappointment that I actually can't listen? All of us have those moments. Well, the answer is... That Jesus will pour out more of His sustaining grace, and that's the third experience of every true Christian. Now, in the last section of our passage, the uh, the rift, the row, the argument between Jesus and the Jews becomes even more serious. And Jesus says something here which sounds really rather peculiar to our ears, but it has profound implications. Look at verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Now what Jesus says here has caused more heated debate than practically anything else he said. So there are people who take the words of Jesus in verse 54 and they claim that what Jesus is saying is that in order to be saved I must take Holy Communion and that the flesh and blood of Jesus is physically present in the bread and wine. Now that cannot possibly be what Jesus meant because it contradicts just about everything else he said, not least in this chapter. So glance back with me to verse 40 which we looked at last week because in verse 40 Jesus says for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise them up at the last day. Now, in your Bible, does verse 40 say anything at all about taking the Lord's Supper as a way to eternal life? Because it doesn't say it in mine. Surely the most sensible explanation is not to say that verse 40 and verse 54 are contradicting each other, but rather to say that these two verses are saying the same thing. In other words, when Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in verse 54, he's talking about believing. And I know we're on the right track with this because that's the way the first generation of Christians understood it. Augustine was probably the greatest scholar of the early church and in his commentary on this passage he says, believe... And you have eaten. In other words, in his mind, verse 40 and verse 54 are two sides of the same coin. But it still leaves the question, doesn't it? What exactly does Jesus want us to believe in? Well, remember, will you, that we saw last week that the whole chapter is taking place at the time of the Jewish Passover. And when each Jewish family sat down to eat the Passover meal they remembered how at the very first Passover their ancestors had been rescued by a lamb. Remember God told them they got to choose a perfect lamb from the flock put its blood over the door as a sign of their guarantee of immunity against the judgment of God. And then they were to eat the flesh of the lamb in order to sustain them on their journey towards the promised land. But those things could only happen if the lamb died. So you see, when Jesus tells us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, what's he doing? He's telling us to trust in his death. Now friends, that is actually why We take the bread and the wine separately in the Lord's Supper. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. Because you see, when blood is separated from flesh, there's death, isn't there? I mean, you know this in your own experience. It's a slightly gruesome illustration, so forgive me in advance, but there you are, driving along on the end 2 and uh, suddenly the traffic slows down and you see the police cars and the flashing lights and the ambulances and you know there's been an accident and then when you eventually get up to the scene of the accident if you see blood all over the road well you know there's been a death why do you know there's been a death? because the blood has been separated from the flesh and that's why we take the bread and the wine separately at the Lord's supper, because we are trusting in the death of the Lord Jesus, not only to give us immunity from God's judgment, but also to sustain us on our journey all the way through life. Now, friends, that is the that's the message of Easter, isn't it? What does it mean in practice? Well, look at verse fifty-six. Jesus says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Now, I don't suppose it's possible to grasp everything that Jesus means by that, but if you're a Christian, then the very least that Jesus is saying to you and me this morning in that verse is this. No matter what difficulties may come, No matter how much you might be in despair about yourself and your circumstances, if you keep trusting in my death, then when God looks at you, he's actually going to be looking at me. And you will know in the deepest way possible that you belong to him today and will do forever. So let me conclude. Have you had these three great experiences of Almighty God dealing with you? Have you experienced his irresistible love? Can you remember a time when you didn't know Jesus and quite frankly you didn't want to know him? But, but God intervened in ways that you might not even have been aware of at the time and he drew you to Christ. Christ. And now your life is different. Now you know that Jesus makes your life worth living because Jesus is the bread of life for you. Have you experienced God's supernatural instruction? Can you remember a time when the Bible was actually pretty meaningless to you? I know I can. You didn't want to read it. You hardly ever did read it. And if you did, you didn't understand it. But gradually you became aware that you were beginning to understand certain things and God was revealing things to you you'd never seen before and especially that the Bible is all about Jesus. And so now, today, this morning, you want more of it. Well, that means that Jesus is the bread of life for you. And are you experiencing, have you experienced his sustaining grace? You know, when life is really hard and you wonder where you're going to find the strength to continue, do you find yourself looking to the cross of the Lord Jesus? Do you see Jesus looking down from the cross at you and saying, I love you and your life is so significant and so important to me that I was willing to die for you? because I want you to be with me forever. So keep your eyes on me because I am the bread of life for you today and I will be always. My friend, I do hope that you can say this morning that you know something of these three great experiences of God dealing directly with you And if you do, surely you will want the members of your family and your friends to have the same thing, won't you? And the place to start, of course, is by inviting them to join us for our Easter programme, isn't it? Starting next Sunday. And as they listen to God's word, to be praying that God will draw them to Jesus. Well, let's have a moment of quiet, and I'll pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, thank you that our salvation was never in our own hands, for if it were, none of us would be your children this morning. But you have intervened in our lives. Thank you for drawing us to Jesus even when we didn't want to know him. Thank you for your gracious instruction opening our minds to understand your word and thank you for your sustaining grace that keeps us spiritually safe and secure especially in the darkest and the most difficult moments Father, all of us know people who are far from you and have absolutely no interest in Christian things. They're hostile, they're resisting your truth. On our own, we can't convert them. So please will you draw them to Jesus this Easter so that they might become your children and so that Jesus would get all the glory. For we ask it in his precious name. Amen.